Okay. Wow, what an introduction. I've got to um, confess, I didn't write that bio piece. It must have been written by somebody else. No, I'm joking, I'm joking. I did write that bio piece. That is my passion. Hey guys, it's great to be here. Thank you so much to the whole New Day team for having me. We've got a little bit of a technical jiggery-pokery that's going on. So as you've heard, my name is Prince. Everybody say hello, Prince. And I'm going to be sharing with you guys this morning. I guess just by way of introduction, I just wanted to share just a little bit of my own story. I am a a second-generation immigrant. My parents moved to the UK from Ghana. We moved as asylum seekers to the UK. For the first two years of my life uh, in the UK, we lived in uh, uh, temporary accommodation, moved around by the council, uh, living in houses with friends and family members and all of that kind of stuff. When I was around about 10, my dad passed away. So that left me and my semi-literate mum and my four brothers um, to basically fend for ourselves in this country that we were, was completely foreign. I was the classic latchkey kid. My mum worked three or four jobs and I would spend loads of time on my own with my brothers at home. And I guess I kind of say that because, you know, in lots of ways, I, my story has the, the, all the sort of trappings of that classic car crash on the way. But you know what? But for the grace of God. But for the grace of God. And you know, the grace of God came to me in so many incredible ways, but there are three really interesting ways the grace of God came to me. One, in a lady called Margaret. She was about 45,000 years old, and she would come every week faithfully to my, my primary school at the age of seven, and she would sit to listen to a little African lad who didn't quite get reading very well. She would sit and listen to me read, and she would do that week in, week out faithfully, and she did that for years. Grace came to me in the form of my pastor, who, when I was 18 and making loads of mistakes in life, just trying to figure out how life worked, when I was battling with questions about what, about my identity and wondering, you know, what it meant to be a man without growing out, up without a father, it was my, uh, my pastor who would make space for me, make space for me to come and question, to ask him silly stuff, to you know, explain to me that the reason my face was covered in razor bumps because I was shaving the wrong way. It was, it was my pastor who made space for me to get that knowledge and that insight that I needed. Grace came to me through him. And grace came to me through my youth workers, my youth leaders. Because there was a couple, a West Indian couple, that every week faithfully would open up this little youth club and would make a space for me to come and be safe. And when I eventually quit messing around and irritating them and doing stupid stuff and came to the knowledge of Jesus, they made a space for me to understand what it meant to be part of a loving community, to understand what it meant to know a loving God. Grace came to me in and through them, and because of them, my life is changed. I am the result of God's grace at work. You and I are the result of God's grace at work. 
And every Sunday, Monday, whatever day you do your youth work, whatever that moment is when you get in front of a bunch of young people and you look at all of their brokenness, all of their um, uh, trouble, all of their heartache and angst, when you look at all of this stuff, I want to encourage you with this. Do not look at the exterior. Do not look at the exterior. Because the Bible says that it pleases God to use the weak things of this world to shame the strong. And it pleases God to use the weak things of this world to, to shame the strong, to shame the wise. And the, and the broken things of this world to shame the strong. Do not look at outward appearance. God has got great plans, and he will outwork them. So, I wanted to make sure everybody is with us and awake this morning. Um, Some of you guys might know I used to be in a band. I used to do a bit of music. Anybody like a bit of hip-hop? Anybody into hip-hop? So I used to do a little bit of that, and I just just kind of thought, it's 9 o'clock, 9.30. I just want to make sure you guys are all with us. So what we're going to do is this. I'm going to wrap a verse, and I need you guys to fill in some lines, okay? I need you to... So I want you to get... I want you to get your wrapping fingers up. Get your Ali G fingers up. Give them that Ali G wave. Yeah, ma'am. We're ready. All right. Now listen. You can't just make up any old stuff. It kind of needs to fit, okay? Just help me out. Here we go. So, did somebody say hit the track? Hit the, hit the track. You're really into this. So, as I'm putting pen onto paper, I'm erupting like I'm erupting like I'm volcanic. Uh, erupting volcanic. This world's in a panic, about to sink like Leonardo in what? From white rabbits to white magic, it's become the norm like habits. I see children jabble in witchcraft whilst J.K. Rowling lives quite lavish. My people are perishing in sin because of their lack of knowledge. Lecturers hack off God in college while football players get stacks of homage. Man, it's horrid. I'm wondering why Jesus gets pushed off their agenda, yet Jesus, there's a reason for most of the celebrations on their... How does season rhyme with anything that you have heard? Yeah, reason, but listen. Do you know what? I'm just going to wrap my own rap. Don't try to fill in. If you've got ideas, keep them to yourself. Because it's clearly not working. Yet Jesus is the reason for most of the celebrations on their calendar. Man, we're mixed up like a blender. The media supplies us like a vendor. We should bail, but like email, we fail to return to... Woo! Man, God sent us a love letter. He's declaring a love that's better. His grace lasts forever, but we prefer to be hugged by a H&M sweater. Or a Marks and Spencer sweater. (laughs) 
Hey, don't laugh if you're wearing Primark, though. <laughs> Listen. Without God in the picture, we're like a flooded carburetor. A man is subject to his debtor, so we remain in chains and fetters. But it's so plain to see that G.O.D. already paid the fee. He claimed the key. I'm sold. Christ has won the day for me. Listen, it's so plain to see that G.O.D. already paid the fee. Man, he claimed the key. I'm sold because Christ has won the day for me. So... There's a convention of lots of biblical thinkers and religious thinkers, and it happened in the UK, and they got together and they wanted to answer the question, what unique contribution does Christianity make in terms of world religions? What is unique about Christianity against all the other world religions? And the first thing that they tabled was this idea of, um, was, the, I, was the idea of incarnation. And they kind of thought about it and they came to the conclusion that, no, actually other world religions have their own form of incarnation. They have their own idea of incarnation. And then they looked at the idea of resurrection. And again, it kind of, they came to the conclusion that in one form or another, other religions have their own idea about resurrection. And then the great theologian and author C.S. Lewis walks into the room and he asks, what's all the ruckus about? What's all the hubbub? And they explain to him what it is that they're trying to figure out. And he looks at them and he answers really sternly. He says, well, that's obvious. It's grace. That's obvious. It's grace. And after some discussion, the conference had to agree. They came to the conclusion that God's love coming to humankind free of charge with no strings attached was completely alien to human nature. The idea that we receive something for free just didn't sit. The Buddhists have their eightfold path, the Hindu doctrine of karma, the Jewish covenant, the Muslim rule code of law. All of these offer, in some way, an earning of God's approval, a way to seek and find and gain God's approval. Only Christianity dares to make this controversial claim that God's love comes to us unconditionally. Grace, what is grace? Well, a simple definition is this, when we get what we don't deserve. In Jesus, we receive everything in God that we don't deserve. Often there's this idea of mercy that's closely attached, that we don't get what we, what we should get. But grace brings this idea that we receive in God what we don't deserve. And if you think about it, it's difficult to find a place in our society where this idea of grace exists. Think about it in sport, in culture, in business, in finance. This idea that we get something that is beyond our merit, that we don't have to fill a form for, that we don't have to prove our eligibility, it only comes in faith. And often, in fact, in our society, we find that it's very much the opposite. Around about nine months ago, I decided to take a retreat. I needed some time just to get away, to just be with God. And I'll be honest with you, I had come to a point in my own faith where I was just battle-weary. 
if you are sitting here this morning and you have ever found yourself at that place, maybe you're at that place now where you're feeling a little bit like broken, weary, heavy, condemned, convicted, you're feeling under it. Well, that's the space that I was in. And I woke up on this particular morning and my mind was just full of condemnation. I felt so heavy. I had this big, overwhelming sense of all of my sin, all the stuff that I can't get right, the habitual sin, the repetitive bad modes of behavior, all of that stuff just weighed so heavily on my mind. So I decided to go for a walk, and I um, ended up sitting in a church courtyard. And after a few minutes, I looked over, and to my right, I realized that there was a graveyard just uh, next, door, next to where I was sitting. And the Lord brought to my mind um, Romans chapter 6 and chapter 7, and I opened it up and I started to look at it. And that whole uh, section of, the, uh, of Scripture um, talks so much about uh, grace and being dead to sin and alive to Christ. And I took some time, I spent about an hour just kind of looking through this scripture and just, just taking it in and allowing it to feed my heart and in my, in my mind. And I meditated on it. And after some time, this sense of this overwhelmingness, this overwhelming sin lifted. And I was able to enjoy the rest of my retreat. But as I reflected on that experience, I realized that something quite deep had happened. I realized that my foundation was really a little bit shaky. In fact, it was really quite off. Because I realized I'd come to a place in my life, I'd come to a place in my faith where I'd started to live in a way that suggested that it was down to me to save myself. That it was down to me to live and act in a way that would in some way make me worthy of God's love, that in some way make me able to connect with God. And to be honest, I realized that that mode of thinking was absolutely crushing me. It was crushing my faith in God. It was crushing my joy for salvation. It was crushing my, my freedom to live in God's fullness. See, grace is a critical foundation. This idea that we don't do it ourselves, we receive in Jesus all that we need, everything that we need in order to please God and find his approval. You know, we live at the mercy of the narratives in our, in our mind. We live at the mercy of what we think. You know, what we think will determine the way that we behave you know what, I've got this great lectern here and I'm not using it. There we go. I can see my notes in front of me. What we see will determine the way that we behave. Hosea 46 says, people perish for lack of knowledge. And uh, Proverbs 23, 7 says, as a man thinks, so he is. So if you and I have this idea, this picture of God being... Um, some kind of mean accountant who is marking down our every action and interaction and just wants to, um, uh, us to live just to the right standards, to follow the Ten Commandments in just the right way so that we can please him and earn his affection. If that's the narrative that we have in our minds, 
it's going to affect the way that we live. If that's the narrative that our young people have in their minds, that's going to affect the way that we live. So during the key developmental stages in a young person's life, laying the right foundation is critical. You know, in building terms, if the foundation is off, the whole structure is compromised. And the whole of the Bible, from cover to cover, from Genesis to Revelation, the whole thing is central. What's central to the whole thing is God's narrative of grace. From Genesis to Revelation, God is revealing his wonderful grace to us. From the moment that Jesus arrives on earth and he welcomes and is welcomed by lowly shepherds. God invites lowly shepherds to come and celebrate his son's birthday. Through to Jesus' final breath on the cross, pardoning a criminal on a cross next to him. Jesus' life is marked by grace. Jesus hardly uses the word grace, but he constantly, constantly tells stories, parables to illustrate the nature of God. He talks about a lost coin. A lady throws a big celebration to find a seemingly insignificant coin. He talks about the prodigal son. A broken son is received with open arms and there's a great celebration is thrown on his behalf. He goes on to talk about a lost sheep. A shepherd abandons his 19 flock of 99 in order to go searching for one stubborn sheep who has not followed the herd. And then there's the workers in the vineyard. I mean, this is a, a completely illogical maths lesson where, uh, in which a vineyard owner um, raises controversy by showing unreasonable generosity. And then there's the parable of the hidden treasure. A man makes a sneaky transaction in which he purchases a field in order to acquire an even greater treasure that he could never afford. All of these parables center around the same theme, that the grace of God, that we receive what we don't deserve, that Jesus goes to great lengths to reframe our narrative about God. So how do we ensure that our youth ministry is on a firm foundation, that we model grace to young people through our ministry? So I want to tell you a story. Um, I want to tell you two stories. And these two stories are quite similar, but they, they both have very different endings. So the first story is from my childhood. And uh, uh, I grew up in a charismatic evangelical church. And uh, there was a lad who was a friend of mine, and he was, a good, he was part of the youth team. We were sort of peers. And uh, we were both involved in sort of leadership in, in youth work and all of that kind of stuff. And this guy started dating uh, a young girl who was part of the church. And, you know, all of the standard usual stuff ensued. You know, matching outfits, matching opinions, awkward public shows of affection. You know, all of the standard pukey stuff. And then out of the blue, this girl starts attending less and less. And eventually, she doesn't attend at all. And when inquired of, when 
uh, questions start getting asked. This guy gets a little bit cagey, and he's sort of like, he doesn't give a clear answer. Well, basically, long story short, it transpires that these uh, two young people have been doing a bit more than wearing matching outfits. And it turns out that this young lady had gotten pregnant, and they together had made the decision to abort this child. Well, I spent quite a bit of time chatting to, to my friend and trying to make some sense of the situation and what had gone on. And the thing that came back to me was this. The, the, the narrative that kept coming forward was this. It was a narrative about fear, shame, and guilt. It was about fear of being judged and excluded. Shame of having let down uh, the church and a deep sense of guilt for having taken the life of an unborn child. So the girl disappears, she leaves the church and she doesn't return. And the whole thing is kept secret apart from a few people who knew this lad. So let's fast forward to this second story. Again, it, this is something that happened in my church uh, current, my current church, uh, a charismatic evangelical church, and it's about a young girl. And she's part of the youth group, part of the leadership of the young people, and she's really going for God. But after a while, I notice that she's not around so much. A few months pass, and I see her, and it becomes fairly obvious why she's not around. But this time, the story ends completely different. Instead of fear and shame, they're celebrating Instead of the story ending in death, not just the girl, but the whole church celebrates the arrival of a new child. Our church leader stands up and explains the situation to the congregation. And the whole circumstance, the whole story is framed in the context of God's enduring love and grace. And that young lady continues to be a part of our church. She continues to love and serve God and know the love of God. So I was keen to figure out what made the difference. So I sat her down and I had a little interview and I asked her, and there were three things that she said. But before I tell you those three things, what I'd like you to do is this. I'd love this session, there's gonna be a couple of opportunities for you to talk amongst yourselves and just to think and process some of this stuff. So what I'd like you to do is this. I'd like you to, just in, uh, your, around your tables, maybe in groups of two and three, just think about an occasion when you or a young person in your group has experienced grace. Discuss the main qualities and the characteristics or the actions that enabled you or the young person to pull through the situation. And what I would say is this, please you know, keep confidentiality and, and don't feel uh, you know, to share anything that you don't feel comfortable with. It's not so much about sharing what happened, but more the qualities and the things that enabled the young person or yourself to pull through. So let's just take a few moments. Just sit uh, maybe in groups of two or three and let's just discuss that.
person. Okay. Okay, okay. So I'm gonna stop you there. I'm sure that in your discussions there's, I'm sure that in your discussions there's lots of good stuff being talked about. Maybe uh, there's some discussion around the topic of care, maybe the topic of empathy, maybe grace. I'm sure there's lots of great stuff and. I just want to share with you, um, just, these are three things that this young lady said to me um, as we talked about what it was that made the difference in her situation. The first one is this. She said that she had the confidence to confide. She said that she knew, she said, I knew I had people who loved me who I could trust. I knew I had people who loved me who I could trust. This speaks of relationship, doesn't it? 
It speaks of making a space where those connections can happen, where young people know that they will, um, can speak without judgment, where they can speak without being um, judged for what they've done, where acceptance and trust exist. <clears throat> and the second thing she said was this, it was about honesty and authenticity. She said they leveled the playing field by being honest in sharing their own knowledge and experience, helping me to realize that I, that I was not alone in my shortcomings. There's something about um, that authenticity, isn't there? There's something about when we um, allow that genuine, we, we um, uh, expose ourselves and open ourselves to sharing honestly where we have been that enables other people to be honest. There's that vulnerability. And she said that it was that that enabled her. And the third thing is this. They expressed God's grace. They reminded me of the nature of God and that God, God's love for me did not change. They expressed the nature of God, reminded me that God loves me he loves me because he loves me because he loves me. Oh, why? Because he loves me. No, but why? Because he loves me. That's the answer, period. There's nothing more to add. So young people make lots of mistakes. We all make lots of mistakes. And sometimes it can seem like we're watching them in HD. I don't know if uh, your church is anything like mine, but sometimes it can seem like the congregation have got popcorn and they're sitting there with their 3D glasses on waiting to see the next turn in you know, the, the madness of a young person's life. You know, uh, science and the study of science has allowed us to understand much better a bit more about the brain and how it works. So one of the things that we know now that maybe we didn't know um, not so long ago is that uh, during, from puberty through to adolescence, and uh, this could go all the way through to the mid-20s, that there's a huge remodeling of the brain. There's a huge influx of hormones that cause new synapses to connect in the brain and old ones to be disconnected. And uh, in fact, the, the, the brain of a teenager, the brain of a young person going through adolescence, sometimes is only at 80% of where it will be in terms of its function. And it turns out that the largest part of the human brain, the cortex, is divided into several lobes. And they mature from the back to the front. That's the process of maturity. And the last nodes, the last lobes to mature are the ones at the front, the frontal lobes. And guess what? They're the bit that, are, are, that is responsible for judgment and self-control, for impulse control for planning and solving problems, for thinking about risk and consequence and controlling impulse. And uh, when the frontal lobe, that's the, the, the sort of red bit, the pinky bit at the front, this bit here, when the frontal lobe isn't fully developed, it's not fully matured, making rational and disciplined decisions is much more difficult. And because young people's frontal lobe isn't fully developed, teenagers tend to rely on a different part of the brain, a bit called the ab amygdala, amygdala. And guess what the amygdala is responsible for? It's the bit that is responsible for fear. 
It's the bit that is responsible for flight and fright, fight or flight, for impulse reactions, for aggression. That's the bit that they go to. And so just this little bit of an understanding gives us an obvious sense of why grace is so critical at this stage in a young person's development. Helping a young person come to terms with the reality of decisions, good or bad. Creating an environment where they can be honest about their successes and about their failures and learn and grow and be encouraged. So we've talked a little bit about the science of why it's important. But let's get to the meat of it. What has the Bible got to say? What has the Bible got to say? What's the Bible bit about grace? You know, the subject of grace throughout the New Testament is a big part of Paul's teaching particularly. You know, um, the whole first section of Romans and particularly like chapter 7 and 8 for me have been huge in terms of understanding, uh, getting a sense of God's grace. But in terms of teaching it and looking at it concisely, I think that Paul's letter to Ephesians is really the place to go. And so I want us to have a really quick look at um, uh, Ephesians chapter 2. And we're going to read together. We're going to look at verse 1 to 10. And then uh, just in your groups, you're going to, I want to encourage you just to think a little bit together about these bits of scripture. So... So the scripture is uh, Second Ephesians, and we're going to go through verse 1 to 10. So Paul writes this, As for you, you were dead in your transgressions and sin, in which you used to live when you followed the ways of this world and the ruler of this kingdom of the air, the spirit who's now at work in those who are disobedient. All of us. All of us lived among them at one time, gratifying the cravings of our flesh and following its desires and thoughts. Like the rest, we, by nature, deserving of wrath. But because of his great love for us, God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive with Christ. Even when we were dead in transgressions, it was by grace that we have been saved. And God raised us up with Christ and seated us with him in heavenly realms in Christ Jesus in order that in the coming age he might show the incomparable riches of his grace expressed in his kindness for us in Christ Jesus. For it is by grace that you have been saved through faith and it's not of yourself, it is the gift of God. Not by works so that anyone can boast. For we, for you and I, are God's handiwork, created in Christ to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. What I want you to do just for five minutes, uh, just in your tables, I just want you to just read through that scripture again. And just discuss, just for a couple of moments, the the, the phrases, the bits that really jump out and strike you, that just, just grab you. Just take five minutes to do that together.
Take it to half past though, because Bex will, um, that if you want, she'll lead it either into a last song or just opportunity to reflect in the group and the Bex will be So you've only got five to minutes, that's absolutely fine, we'll leading some other stuff. Okay, just 30 seconds more. If you could wrap it up, just 30 seconds more. Okay, okay, let's, let's call it order, let's call it order. Okay, sounds like there's lots of fantastic discussion going on <clears throat> about everything other than grace, um, about lots of stuff. <laughs> um, so let's look at this bit of scripture. The thing is this, that this little bit of scripture is just bursting it's bursting. It's absolutely rich. I can't read it without going, ah, it just blows my mind. It's full 
of the explanation of just how awesome God's kindness to you and I, God's grace and mercy to you and I unfolds. As we read this bit of scripture, we realize that grace is not a pedestal that we stand on. Grace is an ocean, and you and I are non-swimmers, and we are drowning in it. Grace is a bit like, it's a bit like a man. It's a bit like the stuff of a man that is staring intently at his sin and wrongdoing. And grace is the hand of God that grabs the chin of a man or woman and turns his gaze or her gaze from that to the face of God. Grace is that thing. It's a bit like, it's a bit like, have you ever been in a traffic jam and you get to the front of the traffic jam and you realize that all of the attention of everybody in the traffic jam is because of people looking at something that's happened on the other side of the road? And we've all forgotten that in front of us is big, clear road that we have the liberty of driving on. There's something about grace that is a little bit like that. And in this bit of scripture, it all unfolds. So let's roll through it quickly, because I think this is a great little portion of scripture for ourselves and for reflecting on grace with our young people. So verses 1 to 3, they tell us this that grace deals with our past state, that we were once dead in sin, that we were under the jurisdiction of Satan. It tells us that all of the stuff in the past, grace deals with that. Verse 4, because of God's great love. I love this. God's great love. His big, enormous, substantial overwhelming love for you and I. God's love. It's the love of a father for his creation. Verse 4 has this line, God who is rich in mercy. I love that phrase. He is rich in mercy. He's generous with it. He's got plenty of it to spare. He delights in giving it out. He gives it where it's not deserved. He's got so much of it. He's just generous with his mercy. What does that mean when we encounter our young people going through interesting stuff? What does that mean when we find ourselves in a difficult spot? What does that mean when we fall short? God is rich in mercy. That is the nature of God. It's reframing our picture of who he is. Verse 5 said, we are, says, we are made alive in Christ. And I love this. Even when. It's a little phrase, even when. But that even when means so much. Because it's that little phrase that tells us that this transaction happens not when we are, have it all together. Not when we have figured it all out and have attained a standard and are able to say, I have arrived. It happens even when. It happens when we are in the midst of our mess and our failures and our shortcomings. That's when grace comes to us. Grace finds itself standing slap bang in the very spot where sinners fall and say, I can do no more. That's where grace comes to us. That's where grace comes to our young people. It doesn't wait 
at the lofty doors of the church. It doesn't wait at the high seat of the court setting. It comes to us in the place where we fall. Verse 5 tells us that we are saved by grace. We receive God's salvation through grace. We are saved by grace. We are not saved by our works. We are not saved by fulfilling the law. Romans tells us that actually the law is an aphrodisiac to our sinful nature. It's just there to help us realize just how unable we are. We are saved by grace through faith. Verse 6, I love this, that he has raised us up and seated us in heavenly realms. Now, what's interesting to this to me, and I had to like take again when I read it, because um, Paul speaks here um, about something that can only be a future reality, but he says it in the present tense. Do you see that? He doesn't say he will sit us in heavenly realms. He says we are seated in heavenly realms. You see, our position, our place in God is already established. It's done, decided, actioned. God has decided it, that we get to sit, that we are part and have part in Jesus. That also means this, that our shortcomings have been accounted for entirely. Entirely. Past, present, future. God has accounted for all of our shortcomings, our failures, our our eccentricities, the things that we do on purpose, the things that that we do by accident, the things that we don't think uh, about that we do, the things that we should do that we don't do, all of that stuff, the plain stupid stuff that we're just like, we even think like, why did we do that? All of that stuff, all of it. God has accounted for, and not just any old God, a God who is omnipotent, omniscient and omnipresent. He lives outside of time. Just think about that. God lives outside of the construct of time. So when he thinks about, when we think about all of our little lives and all of the things that we do wrong, God doesn't look at them and arrive at them and go, oh, oh, really? Oh, I couldn't have imagined you would ever do that. He lives outside of the constructs of time. Your past, present, and future is before God all in the same moment. And seeing all of that, seeing every time that you would make a mistake, that you would sin, every time that you would do something really great, seeing all of that, he accounted for it all and said, I choose you. I choose choose you. And so, when we spend our time fixating on all the stuff that we get wrong, all the mistakes that we make, when we spend our time trying to get our young people to behave in a way that will find approval in our church congregations, approval maybe with God, We're actually denying what God in his omniscience has preordained, what he's pre-planned, what he's thought through, what he's made allowance for, what he has 
Um, do you get what I'm saying? Our debt, our transgression is covered in such a way that God is satisfied to seat us in heavenly places with his son Jesus. It is complete. It is inexhaustible. Verse 8 says... Now let's go to verse 7. Verse 7, expressed in his kindness to us in Christ Jesus. Jesus is God's grace manifest in the flesh. John 1, 17 says, The Lord came through Moses. Grace and peace came through Jesus Christ. Through him we receive God's grace and we receive God's peace. Verse 8, grace you have, by grace you have been saved through faith. He repeats it again just in case we missed it. Verse 8 again says it is not of yourselves. You know, if you were in any doubt, if you were in any doubt, it's not of yourselves. It's a gift of God. And I'm going to skip right down to verse 10. And this is where it gets interesting because it says, for we are God's handiwork, created in Christ Jesus to do works which God prepared in advance for us to do. It's almost like he is saying, do you know what? Like you are um, a demonstration of God's grace. Like God delights in pointing to you as an example of his good work. When people see you and your life and all of the ups and the downs and the failures and the highs and the lows, they look at you and it points to the handiwork of a creator, because they, they look at the situations in your life. If you are honest, they look at the highs and the lows, and they say, this must be the work of someone great. It's a little bit like those, um, I don't know if you've, I recently saw one of these YouTube videos, and you get this, this, this guy that finds this manky piece of wood, and it's dead, and it's rotten, and it's ugly, and you kind of look at it, and you think, Nothing is ever going to come of that. And, you know, the tag at the end always says, watch till the end. Um, and you sit there staring, and, and you watch this fast-forwarded video, and in true fashion, you know, bit by bit, inch by inch, you see something beautiful carved and created out of this wood that you kind of thought nothing ever interesting could come out of that. It's a bit like that. Paul is saying, you are God's handiwork. This work that he's doing, this work of grace, will reveal something that is truly beautiful in yourself, in your young people. So I guess just bringing it into land, um, I just wanted to really quickly talk about a couple of objections to grace. Because I think sometimes when we talk about grace, there's a couple of things that we kind of think, "Uh, yeah, but... Uh, yeah, but, you know, ah, uh, yeah, but this, and ah, uh, yeah. So, <clears throat> I guess the thing is that it's really easy, I suppose, to kind of slip into a kind of legalism, to start off with grace and to slip into kind of doing it by yourself. And I guess that's kind of where I found myself. And, like, 
Paul warns against that. He speaks to the Galatians. He kind of says, you, you, you foolish Galatians, you started off um, with, in the spirit, and now you're moving to the flesh. So it's really important that we, that we guard against that. And then I think sometimes the reality is sometimes church, if we're honest, sometimes can have a little bit of an uh, organizational ladder to it. And that can cultivate this space in which grace doesn't always healthily grow, right? So we need to guard against that for ourselves and against that for our young people. But then I think the other thing is this, that we need to be really smart with ourselves because actually, in some senses, the natural order of things is that we move from from, uh, dependence to independence, right? We grow up and that's what we do. We move out from under our parents, out from under our youth leaders and all of that kind of stuff, and we grow to be dependent. And if we bring that mentality into our faith, which we kind of do as we get a little bit older in the faith, we can move into this place where we think that it's for us to begin to be a little bit more dependent. You know, well, I know the Bible and I know the Word of God and I should, you know, But here's what Jesus says to that. Matthew 18, 2 to 4. Jesus says this. Jesus called a child to him, and he put the child among them. And then he said, I tell you the truth. Unless you turn from your sins and become like children, you will never get into the kingdom of heaven. For anyone who becomes humble as a little child, is the greatest in the kingdom. The order of the kingdom is backwards. The order of the kingdom is backwards. Jesus invites us to come as children, children who realize that we just can't get it right. We just can't get it right. We, we just need Daddy to help. We just need Abba Father to help. And that is the grace, that's the culture that we want to encourage amongst our young people. So just a couple of practical pointers to land. If grace is so fundamental, if it's so foundational, then surely it's important that we teach it, right? And that we teach it repeatedly, again and again, that we look for creative ways to teach it, that we go to the parables and that we go to Paul and we go to the epistles to find lots of different ways to help them understand it, to get it. And that we keep teaching it until we see that they get it, that they get that they are loved because they are loved because they are loved. And that we work through that even when it seems that they might abuse that grace that we understand that actually God has provided it to them as much as he's provided it to us. I guess we've got to own it for ourselves first, right? It's pretty hard to teach stuff that you don't own in your own heart. In your own life, where are the spaces? Is there a space where you maybe have turned a little bit away from that grace-filled message and have this thing where you kind of are adding it up by yourself? Maybe you, like me, have come to that place where you have become a little bit weary, where the joy of serving Jesus has kind of become a little bit dull. You've just become burdened by your own shortcomings. Well, hey, that's a great spot to be in because grace finds us there. 
The grace of God finds us there. So a culture of grace is a culture where we reserve judgment, where we understand that the Holy Spirit convicts in his time and God makes perfect in his time. It's a space where we verbalize love and encouragement, where we don't wait for the trouble to come, but we verbalize God's love and we verbalize encouragement that we run to our young people and we meet them at the point of their need and we speak love and encouragement into their lives. It's a space where we keep all topics on the table and we don't, uh, uh, where we fight the impulse to raise our eyebrows and to go, really? No. You didn't. It's a spot where we hold space, where we make time. Grace is a place where we share experiences with honesty, with courage, and with authenticity. And maybe I'll add vulnerability. I guess that kind of sums those things up. It's a space where we respect dignity, where we um, practice appropriate confidentiality. But most of all, It's a place that we model it through our personal experience and we embrace it and enjoy it for ourselves. Let's pray together. Father God, thank you that you are full of grace. Thank you that you reveal your grace to us and it overwhelms us. Thank you, Lord, for those of us who are just running the race of faith and are just living at large for you and are on the up. Thank you that your grace takes us to new heights, that it helps us to see new um, opportunities and new ventures of where you want to take us. Thank you, Lord, for those of us who are struggling a little bit and have become a little bit weary and are just under the burden of it all, that your grace finds us in that place. It takes us by the hand and it enfolds us and it loves us and it tells us of a future that you have destined, predestined for us. Lord God, would you help us to be those who extend your grace in the work that we do with our young people, who extend your grace to one another and who extend your grace to ourselves. In Jesus' name, amen.